0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today?
1: Today we are talking about the Gospels once again. This is Gospels Part 118. Last week, we had a series of different interactions between Jesus and multiple groups of people. Um, The text, we were in John a lot, and we had the text saying that after Jesus got done teaching and interacting with people, trying to defend his authority, the text says that many still didn't believe him, and there's some reference to prophecy being fulfilled in Isaiah, Um, and then the text goes from there to say that even though that that text is being fulfilled, many of the authorities, I guess we could say like scribes, Pharisees in in that category were believing in him, but because of the fear of the Pharisees, I guess those are the ones who are not in the right, who are uh, being enemies of Jesus and his authority and leadership. They did not speak up or mm-hmm. actually showcase that in their lives and their words and their actions, which was interesting um, said that they they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. We moved on from there to Jesus talking about this he he reference uh, references again this aspect of light uh, and we made callbacks to... John 1 and Genesis 1 about him being that light of creation, that wisdom of God. And he ends this talk by saying that, he's, he's saying that everything that he had said, once again, is not of his own authority, but came from the authority of God. And he made this okay. interesting statement to say that um, his command is eternal life. And we ended that section by saying that everything that jesus has been doing and god is doing is an offering for humanity to accept life true life um and and jesus said it himself like i didn't come to judge the world i came to save the world which is very telling and connects to that commandment being eternal life Yeah. yeah and then our last section was uh jesus was at the house of simon the leper in bethany and a woman came with a flask of pure nard and broke it and poured it over his head. And his disciples were upset about it and saying, why didn't you give it (laughs) to the poor? And Jesus clapped back and said, no, like this woman is preparing my body for burial. And what she did is going to be talked about over the ages, her legacy for doing this in this
0: moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because on one hand, that story is just I don't know, sweet, beautiful, warm, whatever you want to think of, and yet even in the middle of that story, there's tension. So obviously, it's—I mean, that is just what's happening, uh, and so that's real life. But man, if if you were an author, you were trying to write a book. Whoo, that is—you are building up the story. That's that's good stuff right there. So, yeah, we're we're actually going to pick up from there. Uh, It kind of sort of continues, or at least it's related or whatever. Uh, Let's go. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, parallels Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, and Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6. I'm actually going to read from Luke and a little bit from Matthew just so we get the bigger picture. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd." Now, just to add to it, I'm going back to uh, Matthew's version. I'm just going to read most of verse 15 here. It says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. I just included that because it had some detail. Anyway, as we said, we we just talked about this beautiful story. Uh, I don't know. Maybe all of our hearts should be kind of warmed about this woman doing this wonderful thing. However, One of the twelve, and maybe we should repeat that, one of the twelve is not warmed by this story. In fact, he kind of goes cold as ice on us, Samuel. And Luke, Luke even says that Satan entered into him. Now, Samuel, should we be viewing this as demonic possession? (laughs) I don't know. Well, I guess I don't know either, but I'm going to say first century Judaism, eh, they probably pretty much would have or did or whatever you want to call it. Jesus and the apostles, they certainly behaved in many other situations like they believed, you know, that's what it could be or or whatever. And now we could talk for days about how, you know, it, it seems different. Today somehow seems different from back then. But we could also talk for days about how all the different ways it seems exactly the same. So, pretty sure we've said things like this before. We're just going to say it again. There's some place in between. It's in between on one side, every single bad thing that you've ever seen or experienced. Okay, that's caused by a demon. Okay, that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know what, demons aren't real, demons can't touch us, There's no, it's just, it's a thought, it's an idea, it's not real. Okay, somewhere in between those two extremes is the truth, the, the, the actual reality. And, I mean, just to say it, if you believe that this Yahweh God exists, if he is real, well, one thing you got to know is he is spirit, he actually exists in a world that is distinct and separate from ours i know that in some way god is in through all in all and through all whatever yet he exists outside of distinct from creation creation in some ways is actually enveloped in him if you want to say it that way but it's this whole you know to what degree do these worlds interact or can they interact right that's all debatable Now, I think here's the problem. If you believe or act as if these two worlds do not interact in any way, okay, that's probably a big error. If you think that somehow, you know, there's a demon behind every bush and it's just, you know, they're involved in every single thing, well, that's probably an error too. It's kind of a cop-out, right? It's not leaving room for you to actually be the problem. You blame everything on everything else, right? Right. Just to say this, smart money is on Jesus, right? That's always true. And from what we've seen in the Gospels, he lives as if he knows that Satan and demons are real and they are a very real part of the story. And so I think from, you know, reading Luke, I think you just got to kind of take it at face value. Satan entered him. I don't know exactly what that means, what it looks like, but, you know, just take it for what it says. Now, it's likely that Judas, all on his own, just trying to be fair here, uh, okay, just in his own human self, he was probably offended by Jesus. His, uh, and let's say it this way, Jesus's commitment to dying as opposed to actually rising up and being the conquering king. Judas was probably bothered by that. He thought that, You know, what this woman did was a waste of funds, Uh, and, uh, you know, John has told us before he was mad because he couldn't pilfer from it, right, that kind of thing, but he probably felt like his own life, the last three years of his life, Judas's life, was a big waste. Jesus was wasting his life, right, all of that, and if that wasn't enough, Luke tells us that Satan enters him, so you put those two things together, that's a pretty bad formula. And Judas ends up going straight to the most potent, effective group of men that he knew of, the chief priests, which, by the way, who were they, Samuel? What what sect of Judaism, most of them?
1: believe the Sadducees.
0: Exactly, yeah. So Luke's version is super helpful. Judas agreed to betray him, and, and it says that he, he did it, or he, his intention was to betray him In the absence of a crowd. And that kind of fits with the story. We've seen a number of times how these different leaders, whatever, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to do whatever, but they felt hindered because they feared the reaction of the crowds. Judas was going to make it possible for them to arrest him secretly or quietly. That was money to them. And then they paid him right? It's, it's exactly what they'd been looking for, exactly what they'd been waiting for. And you could, on the flip side, you could go back and say, yeah, and Satan, he probably knew that. Is Satan all-knowing, Samuel, like God is?
1: I don't believe so, no. He's working underneath the
0: authority of oh God. Yeah, he only can pick up on the things that are like easily known. I mean, in some way, I guess if you could be a fly on the wall or, you know, that kind of thing, those are the kind of things that Satan can know. So uh, this, though, I mean, you got to figure all kinds of conversations, you know, all this kind of stuff. This was the kind of thing that Satan could actually know about and was kind of working in the midst. You you can imagine that. I'm sure I've got some people listening who are going to think, uh, you guys are, you know, you're You're hyper-spiritual or something, right? And others who are going, no, you guys aren't spiritual enough. There's all kinds of stuff going on. You're not giving them enough credit. Whatever. It's somewhere in the middle. Just go with however you feel about it. Now, Matthew, on the other hand, he's the one who states a very specific amount. These chief priests paid Judas 30 pieces of silver. A piece of silver is a shekel and 30 pieces of silver was about four months' wages. So what do you think that's like about 120 denarii or something like that? Now, this ties to some scripture back in Zechariah. It's chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, and I mean, you got to read the whole thing. Zechariah 11, in and around there, it's the story of a flock that is to be slaughtered and it, it makes reference to the shepherd's wages, the shepherd of that flock. Now, just as a side note, when you go back to read it, man, I, I hear a lot of people talk like this. While you're there, don't overread what's going on back there and somehow think that God is permanently rejecting the Jews in that text. I've heard people do that. Just, listen, if God did that, God would prove himself. Unfaithful. It simply isn't possible. Stop going there. But it's important if if you want more more uh, insight, more of the uh, c- correlation, the connection to that story. You got to go read back in Zechariah. Now, another interesting point, though. Okay, so maybe it was the wages of the shepherd. Here's another thought: that thirty pieces of silver is also the price that someone owed if their ox had killed someone else's slave. Now, that happens back in Exodus 21. It's around verse 32. You can read in and around that. Now, maybe, maybe the chief priests saw Jesus and his followers as the flock that, you know, sorry, they were going to have to be slaughtered. And, and uh, Jesus, or J- I'm sorry, Judas, I guess in this case, would have been that shepherd kind of weird. Or, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, just to say that's why they picked the 30 pieces of silver amount because that. Okay, that's one possibility. Maybe they saw Jesus as no more important than another man's slave. And so they chose the amount for that reason, right? Or, or maybe it's something we don't even know or imagine. It just... I don't know, somebody was sitting around counting out, they grabbed 30, there you go. We don't really know why the amount was chosen or why Matthew is the only one who chooses to mention it. And in the end, maybe it doesn't mean anything at all. It was just a number. But it's going to come up in the story again, so I thought we'd address it at least a little bit. Before we go on, Samuel? Yeah, I'm trying
1: to piece together. um, Maybe I am overreaching or making generalities about how the Western Church treats Judas whenever this element in his story comes into play with Satan entering him. But I almost get the feeling that some people think that Judas chose this fate of Satan entering him willingly. And part of me wonders if it should be looked at more as a combination of who he was, the misconceptions that he was believing about his faith, his nation, his Messiah, um, the things he was struggling with, and that left an avenue of weakness and vulnerability that allowed the enemy, the spiritual enemy, to prey on him, which then later directly affected his actions. Uh, and yeah. all of these things leading to Jesus being arrested and ultimately killed. Do you do you see the dynamic I'm trying to address here?
0: Yeah, I think so. And and I, I'm I, I would agree with you. I think you're def- you're trying to describe Judas as a just a real human person who was struggling. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he was just this evil guy from the beginning and you know quote unquote loser uh, but he was he was he was a sincere follower who, who struggled with the disappointment and 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 all of these things and ultimately left himself vulnerable that's where you're going right yeah yeah i think that's totally the right picture because and how realistic does that map over our own lives we i mean these stories they're they're interesting on so many different levels but somewhere in all of them we can actually see something about ourselves there are lessons to be learned about ourselves how we could be vulnerable in a similar way like judas i think that's uh, a fantastic picture a fantastic picture to have well here's another thing to to think about though samuel do you remember way way back Jesus spent all night in prayer and conversation, working out with God who he was going to pick. He picked 12. And you got to wonder, even in that, was Judas included because, you know, like the other 11, he was totally, you know, a good guy. He was going to be able to carry this forth. Is it possible that when he was chosen Jesus and God actually saw in him the potential to fulfill this role. I don't mm-hmm. know, right? I mean, it's possible. Is it possible that there was more than one and Judas was just the one who ran with it, right? I don't know. right? these are These are very, very difficult questions and and I mean, you know, in, at some point you just have to go, I don't know. How could I know? But uh, still, I think in the midst of it all, it's a lot better to see Judas as a person struggling rather than a person who was just, he was just a bad seed from the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: John had him pilfering cash and all this. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's really hard to know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm seeing parallels between Judas and actually King Saul and uh, an evil spirit entering him. In First Samuel, uh, I think that oh, yeah. that verse is. Uh, hold on, First Samuel chapter sixteen, verses fourteen and fifteen says, "Now the spirit of the Lord left Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrified him." And <laughs> it, it goes on, and actually later in the chapter, David is like attending Saul. It's like the the evil spirit was supposed to be used for david to come back into his life and help him and whenever david came and like attended to him and played the harp it says in later in the chapter in verse 23 uh, david would take the harp and play it with his hands saul would feel relieved and become well and the evil spirit would leave him so why i'm bringing that up is that i'm just seeing this evil spirit as it with a satan entering judas as affecting his behavior his actions his decision making because I'm spoiling the story a little bit I'm I'm, I'm just going to cross reference it because I know we're not there yet later in the story after all these things happen and Jesus is on his bottleneck path to death in Matthew 27 verse 3 it says when judas who betrayed him saw that jesus was condemned he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now that doesn't, to me, that doesn't sound like Satan is still in him in that point because you're sensing conviction, you're sensing guilt, you're sensing the recognition of wrong being done. So in some ways you could see that parallel of like, maybe there is a point later here coming up where, satan actually leaves judas after the work was already done and judas is like oh my gosh like what what just happened like what what all have i just done under the the forces of the enemy right now so i'm just bringing all that up it's it probably sounds like i'm trying to defend judas but i i just want us to not take the classic evangelical approach is like yeah judas is just bad guy all around is like, it's more complicated. It's more complex. It's,
0: it's more gray than that. Yeah. And how much more wise would it be for us to look at Judas as a real life example to say, you know what, if it could happen to him, it could happen to me. And we've seen so many of the parables. I mean, we saw the ones about staying awake. We saw the ones about staying on your guard and, and so being prepared and all of that stuff. Yeah. I agree with you, Sammy. We don't have to defend Judas's actions necessarily, but we can step back and say, "Hey, don't be too quick to judge. Hmm. He was human, you're human, you know what? Just man, look for what really went wrong in this guy's life and and, you know, try to use that as a way to protect yourself from the hmm. same kind of error." Yep. All right. Anything else? No, I've, yeah. I've kept us here quite a while. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. It's good stuff. These are, these are really good parts of the story. So, moving on to the next section, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 19. And this parallels Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16, and Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. And actually, I'm going to continue in Luke. He seems to be providing some really good detail here, so here we go. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. All right. Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. We are heading into some serious stuff. Uh, Along the way, Samuel, have we uncovered and talked about the occasional discrepancy between the Gospels? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And have they, on occasion, actually been a little bit bothersome, disturbing? Like, wow. Mm, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is, this is so, so hard. So we're, we're going to be talking about these discrepancies coming up here. We, we can't avoid it. It's, it's very, very soon. But let's go ahead. Let's just begin by focusing on this specific text first. Let's just act like there is no problem coming. Let's at least talk about it and get that out of the way. So what's the story we're dealing with right now? It's Jesus's final week. In this text, as far as we've all been able to figure out, it is Thursday. And I'm even going to go further. In the Jewish calendar, it's Nisan 14. It's Passover Eve. Just the same way we have Christmas Eve, it's Passover Eve. The topic of the Passover meal comes up, and Jesus sends two disciples to Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover meal, and that is going to occur that evening. At some sun, sundown, it's going to become Nisan 15, Friday, whatever. Okay, so he chose Peter and John. Now, if you had read all three versions, you would see Luke is the only one that tells us that. The others are much more ambiguous about it. But anyway, they're supposed to be met by a man carrying a jar of water, and then they're supposed to follow him, and whenever he enters a house, they're supposed to talk to the guy, the master of the house, and, and just tell him, uh, you know, the teacher, Jesus, says, hey, where's the guest room so I can eat my Passover? Well, this master of the house is supposed to take them up to a large upper room. It's supposed to be already furnished, and this is not weird. Everybody all over the city of Jerusalem would have been doing this. They would have been opening their homes to all of the people visiting, because you can only eat the Passover in the city. And so this was just normal, normal behavior. But... Jesus sends Peter and John to go do this, and somehow they find the right. Now. So Peter and John complete all of the preparations there. As it turns out, tells us right at the end, everything happened exactly as Jesus had said that it would. So it's pretty amazing. Let's not just zip on by that. I mean, that's that's amazing, and you gotta wonder how did everyone know their part? I mean, if you remember, Jesus was trying to you know, mostly remain hidden until his arrest, uh, uh, how would he have communicated with these people if if he even did that? And how would he have done that without the disciples knowing? Because when they tell the story, nobody says, I mean, they act like they don't know. Or, I don't know, maybe this was something more like prophecy, and, and Jesus just knew that they were going to meet certain people and things would work out or... I think that this could be one of the many examples in Scripture where we see God, you know, working in mankind, speaking to mankind through the Holy Spirit, that kind of stuff. I don't know. And and just to say it, this was—it was before Pentecost that happens after his ascension. Or another thing is it could be one of the many examples of Jesus just being prophetic, having this foreknowledge through the Spirit himself, when, We just can't say with certainty what did or did not happen. It's all speculation. But the story is told in a manner that leads us to wonder. We should look at it and wonder how that all got worked out. And it's not a far leap to imagine that the underlying goal of that wondering, that questioning, is to lead us to God himself one way or another God orchestrated this so it's I mean it's kind of cool now whether we can answer the questions or not this is just you know one of those many cool parts of the story they they feel miraculous they feel otherworldly or something and I don't know about you I love that stuff I think it's just super cool now uh, just to add on just some practical details so that you can get that image in your head what was really going on in This story, and I'm going to say it right now. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and these are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. They they seem to be in sync with one another, and John is kind of like the odd man out. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story, and we'll see all of it that follows, it's being told as if the meal that they are sharing together is a Passover Seder. It couldn't have been more explicit than what we read in Luke. Prepare the Passover. We're going to eat the Passover together. That is talking about that Seder meal. Seder means set order. They did this together. And as I mentioned before, they had to eat this meal within the city walls. And think about this. Peter and John, they weren't walking around with animals. They would have had to purchase a lamb. Remember those people that Jesus was throwing out of the temple for selling animals? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right. OK. Maybe he had, they had to meet some people like that. I don't know. Uh, they would have had to immerse themselves. We think of baptism. They call it immersion. They they would go through a purity ritual and they would have had to take that animal to the temple. And Peter and John, one of them would have actually had to hold the knife, slice the throat of that lamb, sacrifice it. The priests would have taken the blood into a, a basin. They would have splashed it on the altar. The priests would have, you know, they would have been doing some uh, work on the, the actual flesh. They would have removed the the sacrificial parts and, and thrown those on the altar. They would have removed the priestly portions for themselves, and then they would have sent Peter and John away with what remained. And Peter and John, they would have had to cook that lamb, in an oven, it was the most common thing in Jesus' day. And, and they would acquire or prepare all of the additional food and drink, that would be wine, real wine, for the meal. And finally, everyone would arrive and the meal would begin. Now, we're going to get lots of detail on the meal itself later. Well, not lots, but, you know, there'll be a lot for us to talk about. And I, I'm, I'm just going to say this. You may think that this is cool, or you may think it's dumb, or whatever. I, whatever, It's interesting. We truly have no idea who was in attendance. Now, we traditionally speak of Jesus and the Twelve. And I'm just going to say, I'm totally good with that. But I also would just like to just throw this out there. It's very possible that there were other people, other I don't know. They could have been other disciples, or maybe they were some family members in attendance. And just to say, you know, there are many traditions that exist all along in Christianity the last couple thousand years. One of those traditions says that Jesus's brother, James, was in fact at this meal. True or false? I don't know. I'm just saying, in your mental image why don't you just leave a little room? It could have been Jesus and the 12, 13 people, or there might have been a few extras. Just as a, a common theme, you know, there's a lot of people trying to pack themselves into the city. A lot of people are trying to eat these meals together. They, on, as a general rule, they probably would have gone for larger numbers. And to eat this meal, it wouldn't have been uncommon to have even as many as 20 or so. Involved in this meal. So could there have been more here? Yeah. Just because they're not talked about explicitly doesn't mean it isn't so. And could there have been just Jesus and the twelve? Yeah. Why not? We're just saying, leave a little room. Don't be quite so firm about that. And and scholars, just so you know, they they look at a lot of little bits, bits of the text and they see, ah, right here, this is indicating more than twelve. This is ending more to, indicating more than twelve. You know what? They might be right. And uh, the thing is, it doesn't really present any problems, whether there was more people or not, whatever. It would be weird, odd for us to think of it that way, because we're so used to having just the 12 and Jesus, but whatever, it's not really a problem. For our purposes, as we continue to talk about it and go through the story, eh, we're just going to talk about it like it's Jesus and the 12. It's just easier, because that's what we're used to, but whatever, I just wanted to say that out loud. So, before we move on, Samuel, and boy, we're headed for trouble, what do you got?
1: <laughs> this may be something that you're going to address later, but I just thought I'd bring it up. Uh, you said at the beginning of this section that, contextually, this is Thursday, Nisan 14, Passover yeah. Eve. Was it common practice within Jewish culture to, like, I'm assuming that this dinner that they're going to have is this same day like in the evening is was yeah. it common practice to do passover meals the eve of passover or was it more common to do it on
0: passover day itself like well no this is the prescribed way okay on the afternoon of passover eve all of the lambs are slaughtered everybody starts cooking and when the sun sets they eat okay that was that was the the normal way and so if we only had this text what we would imagine is that everyone in the city was doing the same thing at the same time Peter and John were in there with just tremendous crowds tremendous numbers of lambs being slaughtered all this stuff but that is part of our confusion that we're going to address
1: okay anything else nope sounds like a good segue to the next section oh
0: boy yeah and here we go so go with me if you will Uh, What I'm going to do is read just a short little bit from John, just as kind of a setup, and then we're going to talk about all these discrepancies. And that may be like the end of our discussion for today. I'm I'm sure that it will be. But, man, this is a lot to talk about. So here we go. We're looking at John. It's chapter 13. We're going to read verse 1, and then just the first couple of words from verse 2, because it's part of the setup. So here we go. Now, before the Feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, and I'm just going to leave it hanging right there. (laughs) Now, why am I doing that? So just notice a couple of things about what John says. He says, before the Feast of Passover, and then he says, during supper. Well, this is our first clue, and, and <laughs> as we continue to read, we're going to find it, it's super clear. John is looking at the world one way, the Synoptic Gospels are looking at it another way, and they just don't line up. This is our first clue. John is specifically making this meal not a Seder. The synoptics are super clear that it is. (laughs) John is super clear that it's not. So now we need to address some of the, there's there's just these big discrepancies between the Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John.
1: Before you move on, can you just clarify what synoptic means in this context for us?
0: Uh, Well, you know what? It would probably be better if I actually looked up the word because uh, I'm having one of those moments where it's like, you know what it means, but you can't figure out how to say it. Okay. Oh, see, this is so much better. Even Merriam-Webster, they say, affording a general view, presenting the same or common view. And and that's just a way of saying Matthew, Mark, and Luke agree, and John does not. <laughs> Darn it, John. Come on, man. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So the reason we've never really talked about that before is because we've seen all kinds of discrepancies in all kinds of different ways, but boy, this one, this is just huge. And I mean, it's just, there is no reconciling it, but whatever. So, so does that help? Yeah. Yep. All right. So going on. Now, there are a few things that matter in trying to figure out what's actually happening between these two different perspectives. So you got uh, the day of the week, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday kind of stuff. And then you have the calendar date. Remember how we mentioned Nisan 14? So calendar dates. And then you have the actual festival days. When are you supposed to be doing stuff based on God's annual festival schedule? And, and that's how they relate to the calendar. And then you have, you know, like the actual Jesus events. What's he doing at this moment? Are they having this this meal together? Is he being arrested and crucified and buried? And when does the resurrection happen and all that stuff? So while we're in the synoptic gospels, we called this, we said specifically, this was Thursday, Nisan 14. But we've got some serious disagreement. We even have, if you think about it, there's actually sort of a minor problem even in the synoptics, because they used this phrase, the first day of unleavened bread. Well, some insist, hey, the first day of unleavened bread, dude, that's Nisan 15, that's Friday. And then you have some who go, yeah, but Luke added on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Well, I mean, that's... Nisan 14, that's the day they sacrifice him to prepare for the meal that happens on the 15th, which occurs at sundown. So, here's the thing. We do know this much. It can't be both days all at once. <laughs> so, seriously, you just kind of have to look at this in in the general sense and from the context, it's quite clear that they're talking about the day that the lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover meal, okay? And and all that means is they were looking at the entire Passover, the Passover Eve and what happened there in prepar- in preparation for the meal and the meal and all of the days that follow. They were just looking at that as a whole. Now, we can argue about the words all you want, all that kind of stuff. I think we have to walk away saying, look, we know what they meant. They meant the day that the lambs were slaughtered. That's the Nisan 14 in in the synoptic Gospels telling that occurred on a Thursday. Okay. But then you've got to step back and think, wait, this is a real problem for my brain. Because, I mean, we've heard this story in church a lot. If Jesus was crucified on Friday, that would have been Nisan 15. But then you have to ask, well, but why do we say things like Jesus was the Passover lamb? They did that the day before. He wasn't killed, right, while the lambs were being... But then we say things like, but Jesus was killed at the same time the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. Well, how can Jesus be the Passover Lamb when he actually eats the Passover meal with them the night before he dies, right? And these are these are hard questions. I mean, if you're trying to work it out, you'd go, shouldn't he have died just in time for the meal? How did he have it the night before? So the Gospel of John, I don't know. You could think that it makes it better. You could say that it it exasperates the thing because in John's telling, he offers a different timeline of events. And and the synoptics read as if they're having a Passover Seder. John does not. It's just the Last Supper. In John's telling, and I'm going with scholars here, scholars reckoning, it's Thursday, just like it was in the synoptics, except it's only Nisan 13, not 14. And in John, Jesus does, in fact, die when all the lambs are being slaughtered. But that would have been on Friday. That would have made Friday Nisan 14 instead of 15. Uh-oh. So in the synoptics, Jesus would have been crucified on a special Sabbath, the Sabbath Yom Tov. And and that would have made Friday Nisan 15. And, and this really complicates the story if it's a special Sabbath, because... Man, what, what are you going to do with like some of the things that they did on that day they shouldn't have been doing on a special Sabbath? Uh, so the point of asking questions like this is merely to highlight that we're entering into a very hotly debated portion of the Gospels. What things are happening on which days, all this stuff. And just, I don't know, we just have to step back and say, Look, each Gospel is from a different witness. There are discrepancies. We've seen that already in the podcast in the past. Now, in fact, we've talked about this. Discrepancies can and often do add to the legitimacy of witness testimony. And, and we've talked about how each gospel writer, you know what? They were crafting their own narrative in which all of these stories, you know, they, they worked together to support whatever the, the big story was they were trying to tell. The sequence, what they chose to include and not include, all of it, it's supporting their overarching point or narrative. Now, all of that leads us to, look, we're going to attempt to shine a light on the discrepancies. We don't want to hide them. We want to point them out, but in whatever way we can, we also want to try to provide some glue or some resolution or some reconciliation, We're probably not going to succeed where so many others have failed. And let's be honest, these so many others, (laughs) Samuel, they were way better than us, right? (laughs) Come on. Come on, son. But they haven't succeeded. We're not going to either. We're just going to try to bring some light to it. But I want to do this. I don't know as a listener what you're uh, accustomed to doing. Every single week, we provide something we've now called the okie-dokie notes, Mm -hmm. and we've got lots of detail in here. I'm going to refer you to those notes. I've got a big chart in here, and it's John versus the synoptics, and what we're going to find out is that John basically agrees with what history would call the Sanhedrin's accounting of time. The synoptics agree with something that I don't know what else to call it except like this rebel Pharisee group who was, they were upset about the way that the Sanhedrin was accounting time. They thought that they were doing it incorrectly and so they were were kind of living by a slightly different calendar. Now we're not going to go over it all. But you're going to see, we've got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we've got John dates, they're one day off from the synoptic dates, and then I've got John in green, the synoptics in yellow, don't take anything from that, I'm not saying that green means go and yellow means caution, (laughs) I'm just separating and, and I've got some of the, the highlighted uh, moments, you know, events that happen and where they would fall in each person's thing. And you could see they agree with things like he was crucified on a Friday, he was resurrected on a Sunday, but there's lots of little discrepancies, but you got to look at it. And I'm just going to, I'm going to try to do an overview to end this part of the uh, podcast. Uh, just some, some points. So you got Jesus, he's dying on a Friday. Everybody agrees with that. What we don't know, was that the 14th or the 15th? You may not care, but it's an important question. The asterisks I have in my little chart, they're trying to mark items that, I don't know, to me, they seem to kind of make most sense in a particular place. It would make more sense if the burial was here instead of here, or the Seder here, or a supper here, or whatever. And Or number two, we might just be marking them because they have such a special meaning in the overall story as they relate to the festivals and all kinds of stuff. Now, I'm just going to tell you, from my perspective, it kind of seems like John comes out to be the winner. You know, like if you were just counting out who's got more asterisks or whatever. But I don't know. It, it It's hard to come down on one side or the other and just say... These, this guy's right, these guys are wrong, or these guys are right, this guy's wrong, whatever. It's just hard. So here, just to point this out, we've got real problems in the synoptics. Uh, the betrayal in the garden, and and the fact that they're wielding swords, and the fact that they have this trial with the Sanhedrin and the release of Barabbas, and, and you know, they're trying to hurry to bury him before the Sabbath and all these things. This is, that is... I, this all would have had to occur on a special Sabbath, the Yom Tov. This is so hard to swallow. And, and this is, I mean, in some sense, it's like what we would call impossible. And yet, that's what they have happening in their story. And John's Gospel, it's not like it doesn't have any problems, but they're not as bad as the synoptic problems. Um, the greatest problem, I think, is this. It's the simple fact that it does not agree with the synoptics. And in some sense, you go, dude, three to one. How can you trust John? But also, you know, it it wouldn't be possible for Jesus to have a last Seder with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion if he was supposedly crucified as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Now, to be fair, in John's gospel, he doesn't present it as a Seder, but then again, that Seder is such a compelling and relevant part of the story. Oh, it just, it throws you back and forth. It's hard to to know who's right. All in all, John has an advantage, but without the, uh, well, let me go a little further. If you didn't have the other three, John's story is completely plausible. The synoptics, even all by themselves, actually they've got a little trouble. It's hard to just accept it hook line and sinker. So, what I'd like to do, uh, well, let me say this. So many attempts have been made at trying to reconcile all of this problem. So many. I'm just going to share one. And it's I'm not I'm not even sharing it because I think it's right. I'm only sharing it as one example so that you can get an idea of what people try to do in trying to make these things make sense so that everybody's right okay so i'm going to relay this one single attempt let's see uh, let's start with this <laughs> samuel fact thank you joy <laughs> there was a that's right there was a lot of fooling around with dates for the annual festivals etc and this what i'm saying is in judaism in and around the first century what kind of shenanigans were going on, this was real. They fooled around with dates, okay? So you've got to have that as as like your foundation. and And all of these dates, just so you understand, they were based off of observations of the moon, the phases of the moon. And so when you're trying to decide when it's a full moon or when it's a new moon— you know what, if you wanted to move things by a day, you could actually play around with stuff like that. So, and and, and that's an important point. It was never much, maybe a day earlier here or a day later there, whatever. And oh my goodness, it was done for myriad reasons and none of them, none of the reasons were for the sake of honoring God. It's just people being people trying to, I don't know, get some sort of perceived advantage here or there for who knows what they're doing. In Jesus' day, this was mostly being done by the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin. And I only mention it because, predictably, the Pharisees then really didn't like it. So there's your tension, okay? Now, if that, something like this, messing with the dates, if something like that was done in this case, and let's assume, just for the sake of discussion, that it was, well, this might actually explain the fact that the days of the week— mostly agree, but that the calendar dates do not. It also might explain how, you know, some might consider Thursday to be the Passover Eve and others not. And it would allow for the synoptics to follow the calendar of like a small group of Pharisees who were going, no, the Sadducees messed up the dates. These are the real ones, right? Maybe, maybe. And then you see John going with the official dates that the Sanhedrin had, had declared or whatever. It allows, in some way, for everybody to be right or accurate. You just plug one group of gospel stories into one part of the story. Hey, they're working with these dates. John into another part of the story. They're working with these dates. Is this all fact or fiction? Who knows? I don't know. It leaves us, though, with, I think, a very real choice. If you look at this and you go, okay, you guys have talked about discrepancies before, and I don't know, I guess there were some hard ones, difficult, whatever, and some not so much. But this one, my goodness, this is crazy off. How can you not get the dates and the days? and This is the, the crucifixion and stuff, right? Well, your choices would be, You know what? Toss your Bible. Walk away. This is just, it's a bridge too far. Can't do it. Or, you just have to understand that there are times when we have to live with discrepancy and tension. Knowing that, okay, maybe there is an answer out there somewhere, some valid explanation, and we may never know it. And obviously, for me, Samuel, us, we're okay with option number two there are problems in the text. Now, maybe there aren't, and it's just a matter of knowing things, but guess what? We don't know the answers, and therefore, we're left with, for us, there are problems in the text. We're okay living with that. And if you're going to continue in the podcast, in some to some degree, you have to be okay with it too. So going forward, we're just going to try to deal with the text at face value. So Sometimes, when we're in the synoptics, we may be talking about satyrs and things like that. When we're in John, we won't. We're just going to act like it's a supper for whatever reason. They just did a Thanksgiving offering or something. And when we're in the synoptics, we, I don't know, we might have to, on occasion, even act like John doesn't exist, right? (laughs) And vice versa. You know, We're just going to treat the text at face value so that we can get as much clarity from the text as we can. Understand what it is that's being communicated by the writer, but knowing that, look, it just adds a challenge. And I, having lived with this for a while, I can say, I don't think it ruins the story in any way. And, and I don't think it will for you as we go through it. Now, and I felt like as I was writing this, I got down to the end, I want to just say one more thing, a little side note out loud. God didn't take control of people's brains and fingers and stuff like that and make them right for him. That's not how it worked. The scriptures simply aren't perfect in that way. I would argue that they are perfect in a different way, but not in that way. And so we just have to accept these writings for what they are. And and I think if we just all stick together as we walk through this, you know what? There's a lot of goodness coming up and you're going to be glad you did. Mm. All right, I'm going to stop talking right there because that was a lot to lay on, people.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, 100%. This might be one of the most academically inclined and maybe difficult or challenging lessons that we've had in the history of the okie-dokie most podcast for
0: sure so if you only knew <laughs> how much i tried to water it down simplify it bring it to the what's that saying bring it low enough that even a small man could reach it <laughs> yeah it's hard Sam. yeah
1: but like paul said the regardless of whatever podcasting platform that you watch you watch, you listen to this podcast. If you go under like the description part of this episode, there will always be a hyperlink to the PDF file of the Okie Dokie notes that are attached to that episode. So just make sure that that's where you go to, or, you know, the Okie Dokie notes will also be on our website, www.ogidokimos.com for your yeah. reference. Now, this would be a perfect time for me to say, let's get out of here, but I have <laughs> I have things. No, do your stuff. <laughs> I 100% like this dynamic that you brought into play with the, the changing of the calendars based on the specific groups and what their motivations were that would cause this discrepancy between the dates. I mean, and there's with me asking this question, I know going into it that there is no way that it can be answered. I'm just asking it for the sake of you know, adding more light and discussion and hopefully richness to the text. But I'm just wondering if the calendar was changed by people who were doing it for taking advantage or power, authority, whatever, why would John, choose to align his narrative with that calendar instead of the one that you could say is has been pushed by maybe more righteous means I guess does that make
0: sense oh I totally know what you're asking and I have no idea I mean you you could look at it and you could say something like well John just wanted to make it so that as people were reading his gospel, he wanted them to know—he uh, didn't want them to have that sense of confusion of, oh, well, wait, these dates don't match up. That, hasn't, that wasn't how it worked that year. Or so that the Jews couldn't come back and point and go, see, you're wrong, you didn't even get the days or the dates right or whatever. You could say that, but then you would go— Well, uh, what were the guys who wrote the synoptics thinking? Because that means they were choosing to insert confusion or, you know, whatever. (laughs) And think about this. We're also saying that that in a sense—and again, this was only one example, one attempt at explaining. It doesn't mean it has any truth or relevance. I'm just throwing it out there. But it would have meant that Jesus and the apostles were choosing at that moment to actually rebel— Against the authorities, the leadership, and go with, you know, quote-unquote, a correct date, which, you know, it's, it's not impossible. We've seen Jesus, you know, push back on occasion, but wow, that's, you know, I mean, that's a big deal. I, I have no idea, Samuel. I, I just don't know. Yeah, And the only thing, the other thing I can say is that the other, the, the Synoptic Gospels were written much earlier, or so many believe, than John. John had a lot more time maybe john remembered it differently or maybe i don't know it, it, some i don't know i'm going to leave it at that cuz yeah. that's the best answer
1: yeah like i said it w- wasn't meant to be answered it's just a interesting yeah. thing to think about uh, yeah the deeper motivations behind one biblical writer versus the others with that knowledge yeah. of how the jewish calendars were constructed Uh, within the larger common culture of that
0: day. Um, Yeah. John was an amazing writer, and he did things. I don't think we'll ever understand what John really did to us in his gospel. It's mm -hmm. so awesome. So I I would have to believe that there's some really awesome and, and cool intent behind everything that John did. But I don't know it.
1: That's going to be one of those things that the white space in between the black text that the Messiah is going to reveal the the That's hidden right. wisdom, uh, whenever he returns and the kingdom and world to come are established. So,
0: yes, please. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I, I did want to add one more thing. Um, it's, it's kind of more of a statement, it's, uh, probably gonna, might ruffle some feathers, but, uh, all of this discrepancy that we've been wrestling with you know was Jesus his uh, meal that he performed with his disciples was it a passover meal was he actually crucified on the passover and the allusions to him being a passover lamb and it has you know people's strugglings with it ha- like these dates have to match up right because he has to be the passover lamb i, I just want to Note or bring to everyone's attention that in no way, shape, or form was Jesus' death intended to fulfill Levitical law for him being a Passover lamb. Right. Like everything that is being referenced between Jesus and his death and Passover and a sacrifice, that is imagery. Uh, and if yes. you want to go further than that, you could say that he is a sacrifice on a spiritual level, like within the spiritual throne or temple, etc. So I just wanted to bring that up to say that we are not trying to have everything fit so that Jesus can perform this mitzvah because that God is not in the business of human sacrifice. He was not replacing a Passover lamb with Jesus on this... particular passover please remember that fight against that misconception because that goes in the face of common traditional judaism that jesus would have been aware of and accustomed to
0: yeah they continued going to the temple they continued celebrating passover and all the other festivals all the way up until the temple was destroyed so let's just call it 40 more years and they didn't do that because they were dumb they didn't do that because they didn't understand what jesus had really done they understood it if you don't see it the way they did you are the one who is misunderstanding it Mm -hmm. you got to get in line with them so yeah good point samuel wish i'd have thought of that (laughs) that's why you got a co-host that's right that's why you get the big (laughs) buck
1: Now, that's a good moment to end on right there. Well, I will take your lead and say, let's end right there. Okie dokie. Oh! Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okiedokiemost.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.